Good afternoon. This is Brian Janikowski with Market Chat, Friday, June the 30th, before the long weekend. I'm Christian Thwaite. And I'm Emily Takenberg, and let's get started. So Christian, this week there was a bit of, uh, of a sell-off in bonds, following some comments from the ECB. Uh, why, why did the market react this way? First, what did the ECB say, and why did the market react this way? Well, first of all, the ECB has, as we've discussed here, uh, been on a very prolonged easing policy. They've initiated QE for probably two or three years. If you remember a few years ago, Mario Draghi said that they, the bank would do whatever it takes to sort of get inflation back up and to support the economies of Europe. And that's exactly what they've done. They've had a prolonged uh, phase of QE. They stepped that up about a year and a half ago. And they've been buying uh, bonds, including corporate bonds, not just uh, government bonds like the, the Fed's QE, you know, for many years now and have really driven rates down. And in the last ECB meeting, uh, the announcement from the ECB was pretty much as it had been in prior meetings, which is they were going to continue to do this and they wouldn't think of tapering or easing off that policy for quite some months. And then earlier this week, in what looked like a bit of a throwaway remark, Mario Draghi is actually a very good communicator. This is not someone who usually makes a mistake on any of this, uh, talked about with, with perhaps inflation coming back a little bit and some signs of economic growth, both of which we've seen, both of which we've discussed here, the good signs, that maybe the easing would be uh, would would be reversed or, or, or gradually brought to a halt sooner than the market expected. So I think it was a mis, misreading uh, of what he was actually saying, but markets are fairly literal and they sold off pretty quickly. But this is in the bond market where, for example, German 10-year bond yields went from 0.1, remember ours are about 2.2, to about 0.6%. So coming from a very low rate. And, and, and then also the French bonds and Italian bonds sold off a little bit as well. So that's what really was going on. And then the ECB probably came out the day after and said, think the market is over-interpreting him. So what it does show that is that these some of these markets, especially some of the fixed income markets, are very much you know, on a cliff edge. They're, they're supported by very easy monetary policy. And that's fine as long as the communication is kept really, really clear. But if there's any misunderstanding about that clarity, then some of these bonds, you know, could be could, could be can be sold off very quickly. But uh, and in the US, we saw we started the week at an eight month low of yields about 2.15 and ended up the week at about 2.25. But then I think that was mostly due to feeling that, um, uh, again, the ECB remarks, but also the, the, the Fed has been restating that they're going to continue this hiking uh, phase, whether they do it next month or in September is really irrelevant at this point, but they're going to, conti going to continue on that uh, tightening phase. And to your point, in terms of, of going from already low interest rates to low interest rates as well, you know, is that... Is that a problem for bond markets? Is that, you know, should should bond markets be reacting this way if we're going from, you know, 1% to 1.25%? I mean, is inflation a, a real cause for concern here? Inflation, no. Um, so we came out on Friday with the, with the inflation number that the Fed follows, which is the PC, which stands for Personal Consumption uh, Expenditure. And that was, again, as it has been pretty much since 2007, below the targeted rate. So we're talking about very low rates of uh, inflation. And uh, I, I think the, the US bond market was has been saying, has really been uh, dicing between two camps. It's the Fed that's saying, 
it's time to increase rates, mostly looking at unemployment. Uh, the economy is getting stronger. They wish. It's not really. Um, and the the market almost not believing that and continue to hold rates low. Now, the minute those two stories converge uh, and the market really is, the economy really is getting stronger, there's a bit of inflation, then you'll see more of a sell-off in bonds. But we don't see it right now. And do you see the Fed, in, in terms of their uh, growth expectations, do you see any sort of miscalculation from them around how much growth we can expect? Not really. That's, that's what's interesting about the Fed is the, in their summary of economic projections, the so-called dot plots, which come out the last, which was a couple of weeks ago, they basically said that they see GDP at 2% and its long-term rate being 1.8%. So this is a, a Fed which is not saying the problem is growth. It's not even saying the problem is inflation. It's saying, if anything, that the labor market is quite tight and therefore we should you know, hike in view of that. Now, you know, I this is kind of going back to the old trade-off of lower employment means higher prices, which is the old Phillips curve. And there's one very interesting dissenter on the on the board, Neil Kashkari for the Minneapolis Fed, who, who makes the point: Well, that's fine, but we're still not seeing any inflation, and there's a real potential risk of, rather, the risk of deflation is not zero. So he is holding out. But anyway, I think the Fed's on this on this kind of you know tightening move. It'll be gradual. I think the market's priced it in. And what we've got to be careful of is that we don't see the yield curve flatten too much and, and that we don't see an inversion of the yield curve where the short-term rates, like something like the Fed funds rate or three-month rate, is higher than long-term rates because that's really not good news. Mm-hmm. I want to uh, turn next to the bank stress test that, that came out uh, this week. And I just want you to explain a little bit about you know what these um, what these stress tests are. How do they work? Um, what is the Fed looking for? Uh, and then you know, in in light of what happened earlier and and financials kind of responding and going up, um, you know, what does that mean for the market and the outlook for financials? Yes, well, really, the stress tests, as the name implies, puts the banks, the leading banks, uh, through a number of scenarios of uh, of high inflation, big economic setback. And in some cases, they also look at counterparty risks. So, you know, a, a bank, as in 2007, might have a lot of uh, traded securities with another with another agent bank, and that counterparty goes bankrupt, uh, and some other global shocks. So basically, they're, they're seeing how the banks would do uh, if they were stressed in the same way they were in 2007, where their, their capital requirements were found to be wanting. So... That what has been happening over the last six or seven years is that the, the principal capital ratio has gone from about five and a half percent. So essentially, five percent of capital—not necessarily equity capital, but bond capital and preferred—for every, you know, for for, for every twenty dollars of lending, which is pretty thinly capitalized, it does it only takes a you know ten percent default rate and your capital's wiped out to more like twelve and a half percent. So that's you know, that's more in keeping with the Basel II regulations and getting them up to a healthier level. So the good news is that all these banks have now passed these stress tests and their capital is now up to a much healthier level. And the, the Fed has said, OK, now you can resume full dividend payouts and share buybacks, which really have, mm. they, they put on the shelf. So that's where, to your point, I think two things we can say out of this. The banks are in a lot better shape than they were a few years ago. 
which is good. They seem to be able to be in a position to, to withstand a, a big shock to the system. We don't really know what those tests involve, but that's, that's generally good. And then the, third, the second thing will be that the, the banks can now pay more to shareholders, so they can distribute more capital to shareholders in the form of dividends, in the form of share buybacks. So I think that's going to be good for the market because there'll be more cash returned to shareholders generally. Isn't it true, though, that you know these, these factors or these stress tests obligations of the banks have in somewhat cut into their profit margins um, in the past you know six years or so isn't that kind of what has made the the banks very kind of low growth in terms of their um, their profits year over year well they've had to build up capital yes so so in, in the past they kept thinner amounts of capital which meant that their ROE was flattered and probably higher than they should have been uh, now they've retained more capital, so their ROE will go down. Uh, but now they're kind of generating more cash than their capital requirements are, so they can pay some of that back. So I think it, it you know, it's a, it has moved to a less profitable industry, um, and and more of a, I think hopefully now more more of an industry which will be relatively low growth, but able to pay. Uh, cash back to to shareholders, and I think that that means a return to a large part of the market. Banks are still about financials about fifteen percent of the S and P, and less risk as well, right? With hopefully less risk. Now they, you know, banks say this every every time they need bailing out, but uh, but hopefully there is less less risk involved in the system. So would you say you know pre stress test world, post stress test world, are banks a better investment pre or post? Oh, post without a doubt. You know, I, I think uh, n now they've kind of got a, a, a far stronger balance sheet, more capital, um, which means more of your shareholder capital is is in the bank and can't get out. But uh, but you know, it's a much better place. We shouldn't we shouldn't see any sort of big volatility in these bank earnings. I want to lastly come to um, you know there was some interesting ac activity around it in shareholder activism this week around Nestle, um, which is one of the largest companies in the world. Uh, and I wonder if you can explain kind of what happened uh, and, and what this means. How well, should we read it? Yeah, it was very interesting. And there sure was this activist letter that came out from Dan Loeb of Third Point, activist hedge fund manager. Not a particularly successful one, but nevertheless, he's got a lot of firepower. And um, the target was Nestle. And uh, full disclosure, I'm a shareholder, have been for a long time. And, but a lot of our clients are too. And because it's the largest, I still think it's the largest company in the MSCI EFA index, so the international version of the S&P. It's benchmarked, it's, it's, it's a very large weighting in the benchmark, it's held by every nearly international fund manager and ETF out there. So whether you own it directly or indirectly, this affects you. So yes, this was a typical activist letter where they, they, they fired in a letter to the chairman of, of Nestle and said, essentially, you know, leverage up, return more, Capital and shareholders to, to, to capital shareholders, uh, sell some brands, improve your margins, um, and, uh, and and essentially pay us more. So sort of typical sort of you know type A activist playbook. And what was interesting was that uh, um, that it you know it's again sort of no no big company seems immune from that. And Nestle is a very well run company. This isn't some you know deadbeat you know conglomerate that's been sort of on its back for years this has been if you've been a shareholder in nestle over the last 10 or 15 years you're a very happy camper so it's um 
it's, uh, it's, it's interesting to see that there is still activism going on and they've targeted such a prominent company. Now, Nestle came back and didn't really take the bait, but they, are, they have announced a share buyback and the stock was up 10% on the week. But I, I just got to be, I feel we have to be careful, Emily, because if, if, if hedge funds are reaching for companies of this quality at this size, at this late in the cycle, it implies they run out of easier pickings, mm-hmm. um, and, and which means that the market is perhaps not as, you know, inefficient, and there's such, and there's not as many targets as, as there was earlier in the cycle. So just be careful that it's not a, uh, a late cycle indicator. But but meanwhile, you know, it's been good for the stock. And what impact, you know, if if we're seeing this kind of activist activity uh, with Nestle, one of the largest companies in the world, what? What effect does that type of activity have on a broader market if we're seeing that at, at a wide scale or a large scale? Yeah. Well, I, I think this, this, this came out partly because uh, Kraft Heinz made a bid for Unilever a few months ago and that, that backfired. But um, I think it means that no one's really safe uh, and consumer goods are, you know, have these wonderful brands. You know, everyone knows Nestle brands and, you know, they own Perrier and San Pellegrino and Nespresso and L'Oreal and all this kind of stuff. So the, these are very rich targets because everyone knows them. They're not, they're not necessarily complicated mm. businesses, not capital intensive either. So, uh, I, but I think it means that if they're going after companies uh, like that at this stage, then, you know, no one's safe, but they're also not doing very much. I don't think they're going to transform Nestle, you know, overnight. So, but anyway, I think we just have to look at it from, you know, strange goings on and possibly late mar- late cycle market stuff. Thank you, Christian. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks, everybody. And now, the disclosure. Please note this discussion of our investments, investment strategy, including our research investment process, represents our investments, investment strategy, data, this commentary, subject notes without change. Let's change that notice. We cannot assure that the type of investment discussed in this commentary will outperform any other investment strategy in the future, nor can we guarantee that such investments will present the best or attractive risk-adjusted investment in the future. This is for general information on purposes only. References to an individual security should not be construed as a recommendation to buy or sell that security. Securities mentioned in this commentary are only several of successful and unsuccessful investments by us and do not represent all the securities we have purchased or the recommended, although we deem reliable. The sources of the statistical and other information referred to in this commentary, we cannot guarantee the accuracy or completeness of any statements of numerical data, past performance, no indication of future results.